You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Morning, Real Life family. How you doing? So I have to have a cough drop in for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm sick. So uh, I love you. Don't touch me. Um, The other one is I lost my voice worshiping this morning. I thank you. Kelly, for that. That was awesome. I needed to be reminded that God's never left me alone. I don't know how you guys felt, but I felt that way. So I think it's more important that you guys hear yourselves cry out truths about God than it is you hear me wax eloquent about something. A couple... (laughs) Thanks. Why is it that when somebody agrees with me, everybody twists it to something negative? Yeah, that's, that's like distorted love is what that is. If that's, we make fun of you because we love you. Thanks. I hate to see what happened if you didn't. Hey, uh, a couple of things before we get rolling. First of all, today is really the absolute drop dead last day for people to get signed up for Turkey. So if you want to go, I've had a lot of people ask me like, why are you going to Turkey? Well, here's why. It's biblical Asia minor. So that's Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, are there. That's the seven churches of Revelation are there. We will see all seven of them. Um, it's the New Testament. Um, so no big deal. It's just, you know, this whole third of the Bible that we call ourselves New, New Testament Christians. Like the reason why you're called a Christian happened in Asia Minor. So let's come have that conversation. Anyway, if you're interested in that, come see me. I'll send you the registration link, but it's, you need to be registered today. So uh, I'm excited about that trip. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I want you to love you to have you come join us on that. Um, the other thing that I want to throw out at you is uh, Easter's coming up, and we're super excited about Easter at Beasley. Still have lots of spaces for people to volunteer if you're interested. A lot of connections, places, a lot of people just being hosts over sections. It's really easy to do. You get a little segment of chairs, and anytime somebody comes and sits in your chairs, you go say hi to them. Do you understand how significant that is? to somebody who's new. Like you could speak vision without ever saying words, just hi. Um, And so that is really uh, a cool opportunity. I wanna make sure that you guys take advantage of that. You can sign up at easteratbeasley.com or uh, in the two garage room at the front of, I don't know what they call that room. What's that room called? The hub, the hub. I know they have cool names for it, I don't. It's been changed like 12 times. So it's the two garage door room up in the front corner. Can't miss it. It's got two big garage doors on it. Um, Hence the name. So we're in this series through the last week of Jesus's life, this Lent series where we've been wrestling with what we let go of and what are we needing to let die in our own life through this season of Lent so that we can experience resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And um, what's interesting is last week we talked about Tuesday, And we talked about how we have this massive amount of text about Tuesday, Matthew chapter 23, 24, 25, and 26, all about Tuesday. For Wednesday, which is the day we're talking about today, we have exactly zero text about what happened today. Nothing written, nothing recorded. Apparently, nothing happened on Wednesday. So what we're going to do, and this is a very appropriate sermon, a Lent sermon is, what we're going to talk about this week is, what do we do with the silences of God? When God is silent, what are we supposed to make 
out of that. Because what happens is for a lot of us, when we think about the silences of God, when God is silent in our life, we start to take it to some really bad places in our own um, personal, just the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we're thinking about the world. When God, when it feels like God's not speaking to us, we always assume the worst and we twist it and distort it into something really super negative. And so I want to talk today about how we can understand the silences of God biblically. And I want to give us at least four ways that I see the silences of God being used in scripture. Okay. But we're going to begin with a quote from a guy by the name of Paul Thigpen, which if there was ever a stellar last name, Thigpen, that is cool. Okay, let me chew this up real quick. I'm about to get rolling. God's silences, like his words, are intended to be redemptive. This is so important for us to grab. God's goal for this world is the redemption of all things. It's not browbeating. It's not beating people up. It's not making people feel bad or punishing them for what they've done wrong. God's goal for this world is the redemption of all things. And therefore, when God speaks to us, his objective is the redemption of all things. And when God is silent, his objective is the redemption of all things as well. Same objective. We often want to make it something else. But what we have to understand is that God's silences, like his words, are intended to be redemptive. But we must learn how to interpret them. In fact, the Lord's refusal to speak may well say more to us than a direct word from him and say it more clearly and emphatically. If we learn to understand God's reasons for remaining quiet, we'll be able to receive the silence as part of his revelation to us. This, this is really powerful. Like, we've got to understand the silences of God in a right way so that we can understand how God is using the silence to redeem the world, both in our own hearts and the world around us. God's objective is always redemption. It's always about giving things value and restoring it to its original purpose. That's God's business. He's not in the business of making us suffer. He's not in the business of making us pay for what we did wrong. That is not God's agenda. That's a twisted, distorted, messed up church's perspective. But God's not interested in making you pay for sin. He's interested in restoring you to right relationship with him. Now, let me see. Let me qualify that because I know immediately you're like, wait, wait, wait. If you receiving the, the effect of your sin is the right way to redeem you, then that will happen. Sometimes it is, but God's agenda is not about beating you up and making you pay for all your mistakes. That's not God's heart. God's heart is about getting us in a right relationship with him. And so there's at least four reasons that I want to talk about this morning that God might be silent. The first one is a silence of judgment. So let's just get this one on the table. Everybody thinks this is what God's always doing. He's judging me. He's beating me up. He's making me feel bad. Look, Sometimes, sometimes God is putting us in a position where he's not going to say anything more until we already, till we do something with what he's already shared to us. And what, for, what many of us do is as we're walking with the Lord, God will say something to us and we're like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give that thing up. I don't want to go that direction. I don't want to live that life. I don't want to make that decision. Okay, so here's what God does. Let me know. 
when you're ready. It's not like God is up in heaven going, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, if you don't want to do that, then here's something else to try on, right? Like God's not your servant, and it's not like you have a better thing to do with your life than what he has for you to do. God's like, oh, like you don't want to do what I want you to do? Okay, I'll be here. And for a lot of us, we get caught in this cycle of, I want to do my own thing. Where are you, God? Remember that thing I asked you to do? Yes. This is children of Israel, right? Like, oh, you're not ready to go around into the promised land? All right, let's take another lap around the mountain. Not ready yet? Another lap. Another, not, not 40 years. Not, not ready yet? Okay, another lap. Like, I'll be here. I'll be here when you're ready. Whenever. I'm not going anywhere. But sometimes it's about like, listen, until you're willing to let go of the thing that you're doing that's not lined up with God's agenda, it's not like God has any reason to show you anything new. He's already shown you what you need to do. And until you're willing to act on it, he's not going to show you more. Why would he? So I want to tell you a story out of the book of 1 Samuel. What's happening is a lady by the name of Hannah is barren. She can't have children. And God miraculously gives her a son. And she names her son Samuel. And she dedicates him to the Lord. So she actually lets him as a little kid move out of her house and into the house of Eli. Eli is the high priest in the tabernacle. And so Samuel begins being trained by Eli to function in the tabernacle. Now, Eli has two sons. And his two sons are evil guys. And the reason why we see them as evil is because as they're administering the duties of the tabernacle, they're doing it in a way that takes advantage of God's blessing. They're doing it for their own selves. And there's all these descriptions of how they're doing that. But they're treating the sacred things as common. God's direction in their life is not something that they're taking seriously. They're like, yeah, God gave us some general guidelines, but God's words are kind of like the pirate's code. They're general guidelines, not actual rules, right? What's happening is God's not pleased. And so I want to I wanna look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. Here's what it says in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men, these, the young men here are Eli's sons, his two sons. The sin of the young men were, was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now the rest of chapter 2 tells us how. Okay, but in chapter 3 and verse 1, here's what it says. Essentially, as a result of all of this ways that they're taking, treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Why? Because they've chosen to take God's things and treat them as common. Listen to me. God is holding the universe together, when he shows up and says something to you, like we ought to sit up and take notice. His, his, his words are not common. His words aren't just good suggestions or nice ideas. God's word for you in the moments when he comes and speaks and leads you is the very best thing that could possibly happen to your life. The very best thing. It's not just that it's right, it's better than anything you can come up with on your own. 
And I know that a lot of us look at that with contempt. We're like, but God, I don't want to. I don't want to give up this thing, or I don't want to lay down that relationship, or I don't want to have to have that conversation with this person about that tough issue. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. You're like, I have a toddler that looks just like that. That's exactly where our spiritual life is when we treat it with contempt. Like, I don't want to do it. I'll do it my own way. And God's like, okay. Okay, go ahead. I love you. I'll be here when you're ready. I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. But I ain't saying anything else. Like, sometimes, sometimes, God's silences are silences of judgment. Until you're ready to treat the things that I've already shown you well, I'm not going to reveal anything else to you. Sometimes. Now, sometimes it's something else. Sometimes another reason for God's silence is God's silence is a silence of mercy, right? Uh, In the words of the great philosopher, Garth Brooks, (laughs) some of God's greatest gifts are, you guys know the song, yeah, man, unanswered prayers. And you know, you know that you've, you cried out to God for that thing or that place or that job promotion or that person in your life or whatever. You cried out to God way back then and you know today, standing here looking back, that you are so thankful God didn't give you what you prayed for. Because if he had, man, life would be a mess. Right? Like, that person's life or that situation, it didn't turn out at all like I thought it was going to. Thank you, Lord, for your silence of mercy. Right? Thank you for not answering that prayer. I want you to imagine how it would have been if Jesus, when he was on trial, would have answered their request. Show us that you're God. Could you imagine? Look at this Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now, this is a prophecy that Isaiah gives about Messiah. Right Now you can say Jesus, yes, it is Jesus, but Isaiah doesn't know Jesus. This is 600 years before the time of Christ. This is, this is Isaiah making a prophecy about the Messiah coming. The Messiah, the one that's the deliverer of Israel, says he was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Sometimes... The most powerful testimony of God in our life is to just shut up. And we spend so much time trying to prove and convince and out-talk and out-think and out-maneuver people in conversation. Sometimes the best testimony of God's faithfulness is for you to just be quiet. Now, Jesus fulfills this prophecy in Matthew chapter 26. But Jesus remains silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Do you imagine if he answered that prayer? Remember he said in the garden, don't, don't think that I don't, I got 12 legions of angels to come down here and take care of business for me. At my disposal. This is a silence of mercy. And sometimes God not answering our prayers is him protecting us from ourselves. Sometimes we want things that we think are really, really good and really, really important. And God is saying, hey, you have no idea. You have no idea if I give that to you, how damaging that's going to be in your life. Like you see it as a good, here's the thing. I love me. Right? Like you could always agree with me on this. Like you love me too. No, I'm just like... You love yourself. You, you are really, really significant to you. 
And so when we pray and we ask God for things in our own life, sometimes we don't always understand why he wouldn't just give it to us. Like, I understand how this would benefit me. And, and God's like, well, um, yeah, but if I actually gave you what you're asking for, it would be super destructive. So I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm going to be merciful to you. Which leads me into this third area of, of silence. Another reason for God's silence is that it's a silence of waiting. Like sometimes we're praying for things and God's like, yes, but I got a few other pieces to put in place first because this thing, this world that we live on, it isn't just about you. Like you could get it in your time, that'd be fine for you, but I don't know if you know this, the world revolves around the sun, not you. And so there's these other factors because there's a ripple effect in this thing that you're praying for. And I want to make sure that it's a blessing for everybody because that's always been God's agenda. God's agenda has always been about being a blessing for all the nations, for all the peoples. So sometimes we're praying and praying and praying and God is saying, yes, but just a minute. Yes, but hang on. And sometimes that's why God's silent. It's not about I did anything wrong. It's not about God doesn't care about me. It's not about God doesn't hear me. It's not about any of those things. It's simply about God saying, I'm working out the pieces. Hang in there. Especially when you're praying for somebody else to do something for you. Like God, just intervene and take away their free will. Now let me have my free will, but take away theirs. Like No, God's God's working the pieces out. And, and this is one of those things where when we're praying for something and it's in line with God's will, like we're going to get it. And yet there's this waiting piece that's happening where God is working out the details. I love Isaiah chapter 40. Here's what it says. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Here's what he's saying. Why do you people keep saying God doesn't see me? Why do you keep saying God doesn't hear me? Like we're praying. And God, you're not answering. So obviously you don't see me. Like this is the funny conclusion that we make. If we pray and God doesn't answer our prayers, then well, then God just didn't, he just doesn't see me. Well, maybe there's other factors. Maybe that's not the only option. Give me what I want or you don't see me. Maybe that's not the only part of the equation. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. God doesn't take naps. It's not like you were praying and you were like, oh, dang it, God was taking a nap and I, he missed it. And I was praying, but he didn't hear it because he was sleepy. God doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Wait on the Lord's answer, and all of a sudden what you'll find is a more powerful position than you ever knew was possible. When you try to force things in your own way, it always turns out to be a disaster. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, which I love the beautiful metaphor word picture of this, right? Only one problem. In this time period in Israel, there were no eagles. 
The, it's the, the word that's translated eagle there is the general Hebrew word for bird of prey. And I had somebody a Thursday night that was like, well, I did some research and today there are no less than six species of eagles and blah, blah, blah. Yes, today that is true because they were transplanted there by the Zionists. But that's another conversation for another day. At this particular time in history, the only bird of prey that was there was the buzzard, which doesn't quite give us such a beautiful word picture. You will mount up with wings like a buzzard. Um, with my bald head. <laughs> See? It works for me. The metaphor works for me. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Have you ever looked at little kids and gone, man, I want to bottle that energy, right? He says, you look at, like, young, young men and women, like, they, they, they have so much energy, but even they faint, even they go to sleep, even they pass out eventually. But if you wait on God... You run and you won't grow weary. Why? Because when you're living your life, you're not living under your own strength. You're living under his. And you're not going to move until he shows you where to move to. Then you're not just getting things done. You're getting things done under his power. And that's a really important thing. Sometimes God's silence is about him working out the pieces in our life and in the lives of people around us so that when he answers the prayer, it can be more than we ever thought possible. When he answers that prayer, often we will step back and go, holy cow, only God could have done that. And that's when he goes, that's the point. <laughs> That's the point. Now, there's a fourth reason for God's silence that I see in the scriptures, and there's probably others too, but there's a fourth reason that I, that I see, and this one is one that I really want to um, help us understand. It's a silence of testing. Oftentimes, God will stay silent in our life, not so much because of any of these other things, but because it reveals to us what we really believe about him. It reveals what's in our own heart. The, there's a story in Second Chronicles about a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is a righteous king, which is a rare commodity at this point in the, in the history of God's people. But he's a righteous king. And he goes all through the land and he tears down all the temples of, God, of the pagan gods, all the high places. And in fact, he tears down some places where they were actually worshiping God, but it wasn't even in Jerusalem. If you come with me to Israel, we'll go to a place called Tel Arad, which is, uh, there's a temple there that's the exact specifications of the temple in Jerusalem. It's fascinating. And what they found when they excavated it. It'll blow your mind, but this is all attributed to Hezekiah tearing down the high places. It's really interesting. Um, Hezekiah tears down all the high places, turns the nation back to God, and God starts blessing the people as they start following him again. And so Hezekiah stands back and goes, man, I am awesome. Look at what I did. And so his heart becomes proud, and God then pours his wrath out on Hezekiah and the nation. So Hezekiah all of a sudden humbles himself. It's weird how that works out. He, was, he becomes proud and because of the blessing of God, and then he humbles himself because he wasn't getting the blessing of God. What's inter I, it makes me think of the story of um, the feeding of the 5,000. Right, the story right before that, 
Jesus sends the 70 out and they come back and they're like, Jesus, we, we drove out demons in your name. We healed sicknesses and we did this and we did that. And we did whatever. It's just so fascinating to me because the next story, they're on the hillside and the disciples come to Jesus and say, man, these people are hungry. They need some food. And Jesus goes, you give them something to eat. I mean, you, you drove out demons. You healed sick. You, you guys are amazing. You feed them. And they're like, we can't. I know. <laughs> it's Jesus's, that's in the subtext. I know. I know. Never forget that all good things that happen in your life, whether they happen through your hand or not, are a result of God's blessing in your life. And often we need to be put through a silence of testing to remind us of exactly who has the power in our own hearts. And so what happens is the Assyrians attack and Hezekiah gets shut up in Jerusalem. This is a fascinating little tidbit. Saladin's historical record of this, who was the general of the Assyrian army, he was the king, um, he said, we had Hezekiah shut up like a bird in a cage. The biblical account of this says that Hezekiah was shut up like a bird in a cage. It's the exact same phrase, which is fascinating. But what happens is after this battle is over, the Syrians go back home. They don't conquer Israel. And Babylon's send some envoys to Israel to hear the story. They send some delegates to kind of get the, what did your God do here? Because that's important to know. If you're going to defeat the Assyrians, how did you guys defeat the Assyrians? How did you do that? So here's what happens. Um, Chapter 32, as so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who've been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know what was in his heart. God God draws his presence from Hezekiah so that Hezekiah has to make a decision. Am I going to be proud about this? Am I going to be prideful again? Or am I going to stay humble? Was this God's victory or am I just really, really awesome? I want to close today by reading a passage out of John chapter 6. And this is not so much a passage about God being silent, but the reaction of the apostles of the 12 really is important for us. And it's a, question, it's a statement that we're going to have to wrestle with when we consider how we're going to respond to God in his silences. Okay, And so I want to read this. What's happening here is that Jesus has just told a big crowd of people, uh, first of all, the context, the large crowds are following Jesus. Anytime you see that phrase, Jesus is about ready to blow something up, right? Large crowds are following him, and he says to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part of me. And they don't know what to do with that, because that's cannibalism is against Torah. Plus, consumption of blood of any kind is bad. Okay, so let's read. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, another sermon for another day, what he means here, but roll with me on this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. 
When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And, and he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, if you're following along taking notes, you need to circle the word disciple. Because in Jewish world, disciples aren't anybody that calls themselves a Jesus follower. The disciples are people who have been specially chosen to walk, move out of their house, walk around and do, give their life to becoming just like their rabbi. These are people who have followed Jesus all over the place. Not, these are not just people who generally believe in God. These are his special ones. And many of his disciples turned back. Many of the people that had already made a choice to follow him with their whole life. So Jesus said to the 12, his apostles, remember when he set aside the 12, the 12 weren't his only disciples, but he had 12 whom he also designated as apostles. So he said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? I love Peter's response. And here's what I want to say. When you're in the silence of God, you will be wrestling with the very question that Jesus asked. You want to leave? God's being silent. You going to bail out? God's not answering my prayers. You going to quit? You going to give up? You going to be done? You going to whine? You going to complain? You going to talk about all the things that you think God should do because you're smarter than him? You're going to put yourself in the position of controller of the universe? You're going to do that? I love Simon Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, every single one of us will experience the silences of God. We will. Every single one of us will. And for many of us sitting in the room today, we are. Here's what I want to say to you. You have a choice what you're going to do with that. You're going to go try to push your own agenda? You're going to go try to do it on your time, your schedule, your way? Or are you going to wait for the Lord to show up? Because God's silences are temporary, and this is not the end of the story. With that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. If you're new with us, we have an open table. That means that we... Uh, anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. We take communion every week as a church family. And I love it because it's a reminder for us that there is no place that God will ask us to go where he hasn't already gone, even if that means laying down your very life. And so we're going to work through a few implications while they pass that out. Um, by the way, we want you to hold the elements till the end. We'll take them all together. Um, we're going to work through a few implications. These are things that we thought were particularly important. Now, I know for a lot of us, as we wrestle through our own silences with God, there's a lot of us that are going, that, that in this place in my life, that means this, and that may not be tied into our implications. That is okay. Wherever the Spirit wants to land it in your own life, let Him. That is totally fine. But these are a few things that we thought were particularly important as we land the plane on this sermon. Number one, God's agenda is to redeem the world. 
that doesn't change because we see him as silent. God's agenda to redeem the world doesn't change because we see him as silent. God's silences and his words both function to serve the same purpose. And that's to redeem, to restore what sin broke. Maybe we can rest in that. Number two, how we respond to God's silences reveals what we really believe about God. Do we believe that God has given us everything that we need in this moment, or do we believe that he's holding out on us? What do you believe about God? It's revealed in the silences, right? It's not revealed when God's super present and, he's, and you just know and you sense his leading and you see it and you feel it and there's no getting away from it. That's not where God's, where how, what you really believe about God shows up. What you really believe about God shows up when you don't know where he is and you don't know what you want him to do and you stay faithful anyway. That's the moment where we see what our faith is really made of. Is God holding out on us or has he given us everything that we need to succeed? Number three, we often make matters worse by trying to make sense of the situation. We must be willing to sit in the mess with people rather than trying to solve it. Now, for all Christians, like we love the story of Job, right? Like I stubbed my toe. I got to read Job. The Lord's really testing me, you know. The Lord's really testing me. My alarm didn't go off this morning. Um, what I love about the story of Job is he has three friends that show up and they try to answer this question of why is God doing this? Why is this happening? Why? 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 Like, we feel as if, as human beings, we are entitled to know why God does things. Let me just be clear about that. You don't have, you don't deserve to know why God does what he's up to. He's God, you're not. But further than that, Bible says, Isaiah 55, 9, God says, my ways aren't your ways, and my thoughts aren't your thoughts. So even if you knew why, it wouldn't make sense out of it. And let's be honest, even if you could make sense out of it, would it be enough? The answer is no. Even if you knew why, you still wouldn't be okay with it. The far better question is what now? It happened. Whatever it is, it happened. And there's no changing it, and there's no denying it. What now? Why is not the right question. And when we, as followers of Jesus, step into those situations with people and try to answer the question why, we can really do damage. Just like Job's friends did. Like, fortunately... Fortunately, Job had enough character to actually wade through it. And then God shows up and says, answers Job out of a whirlwind, right? You remember this? Answers Job out of a whirlwind. You know you're in trouble when God answers you out of a hurricane. He says, hey, Job, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to ask you some questions and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Like what I love about God's entrance into the situation is like, Job, in your finite perspective, do you believe that you even deserve the answer to why, let alone know how to steward it well? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Where were you when I set it in motion? Surely you know. Where were you when I said to the sea, go this far and no further? Who do you think you are? Listen. Listen. 
we often try to play the role of God in our own lives. And I'm just saying, we make matters worse when we try to do that. Sometimes faith in a difficult circumstance isn't going to make sense, but it's going to be better to hang in there and trust God. Last implication. When we're praying for God to give us something and, and he remains silent, it may very well be God asking us to let that desire die. And now we're tied back into Lent. Sometimes the silence of God is simply, I know that you believe that that thing that you're praying for is awesome. But you got to let it go. You need to let that desire die. And when you do, when you hold on to that desire, your hand isn't open to receive anything better or new. But when you open your hand up with that desire and let it go, God can fill your hand with something much, much better. So I would just ask you as we enter into the communion time, have you come to God with a closed fist demanding that God honors your agenda and frustrated that he's not answering? Or have you come to God open-handed and said, God, your way, your will, your time? I love communion in this context because what Jesus models for us is that we don't get God's best for our life by holding on to our life so tightly. We get God's best for our life by laying it down and letting it go. And he's proven that he's willing to do it too. So this reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup. He said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, I know I'm supposed to be thankful for your silences. And sometimes when my heart is right, I am. And I spend a lot of time wondering why you do what you do. And I don't understand why things work out the way they work out. And I don't get how you could possibly redeem situations that you put all of us in. But Lord, this morning, I just want to say that for myself, I'm thankful that you see the end of the story before it's written. And that you are a good God who gives us good things in our life. And we can rest that regardless of our circumstances, you're leading us to a better tomorrow. Thank you for that promise, Lord, in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 